You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Hello, I'm Willie George. I want to welcome you to this very special teaching. It's a prophetic series called The End from the Beginning. Many of these things I've never taught before. Many of these things I've never heard anyone teach before, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're accurate. But I'm going to be very careful in the way that I present this material because I want you to have a thorough and solid understanding of how Scripture is to be interpreted and how we rightly divide the word of truth. There are a lot of people who pick passages here and there, take things out of context and so forth, and it's very easy to do. Uh, But I've learned after 50 years of ministry to be very careful in the way we proclaim things. I've even looked back on some of the things I've said in the past and wondered, you know, that was wrong or I could have done that better. And so with all of that, we're going to approach this subject with a, a solemn attitude. And yet at the same time, with an attitude of faith and expectancy, the word of God should always lift you. It should always give you a sense of victory, even when it pertains to troubling times, which is what we see a lot of today. In from the beginning, God tells us that we can foresee future events by looking carefully at things that have happened in the past. Uh, Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 1.9, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. In essence, Solomon is saying that history has a way of repeating itself, and especially when God is working with his people. Let me give you a great example of this. The temple at Jerusalem was destroyed, the one that Solomon built. The first time it was destroyed was on the ninth day of Av, and about the year 477 or 478 B.C. There's still some disagreement about the year. There is no disagreement about the date. Very clearly, it was the ninth of Av. Now, the temple was rebuilt, spent over 40 years getting it done with King Herod and a massive building program, and the temple complex was considered to be the greatest building in the world at the time that Herod built it. Not even anything in Rome compared to it. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. under the general Titus. It didn't actually intend to destroy the temple. But when they conquered the temple mount to punish the Jewish people, they accidentally set fire to the temple, and it was richly adorned with gold. The gold fell into the cracks between the stones. The only way to extract it was to... Uh, pry the stones apart. That's why Jesus said there won't be one stone here left on top of another that won't be thrown down. And that also happened on the ninth day of Av. Uh, The Jews were expelled from England in uh, about the 10th or 11th century on the ninth of Av. Uh, Same thing happened in Spain. The Jews were expelled on the ninth day of Av in 1492, I think it was. So what we see is again and again, this day is a time of great suffering 
for the Jewish people. It is a fast day even to this day. So the ninth of Av is a very serious day for them. Uh, here's another example. Uh, Jesus was welcomed into this world by Joseph and Mary. Joseph being his adopted father, Mary being his biological mother. And when they got him, the scripture points it out. He was wrapped in cloth. That's a significant part of the gospel narrative. We see that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, when Jesus was crucified and removed from the cross, his body was handled by none other than a Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and Mary, Mary Magdalene. Now, there were several Mary uh, women, but the chief of them seems to have been Mary Magdalene. And what did they do? They wrapped him in a linen cloth. And so you see these repetitions, and they're all throughout the Scripture. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There's no new thing under the sun. So there is a repetition. We can learn then about what is coming in the days ahead by looking at their parallels from the past. And there are very definitely uh, real parallels. This is what Jesus said about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 26. I'm reading from the New King James Version. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that, that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." Now, I want to point something out about this passage. This says that when the Messiah returns, he will come to an earth where there is a thriving economy. You can't marry and give in marriage and eat and drink and buy and sell and, and build. can't do all that without money. The economy is going to be strong. For this reason, and you can go back and check it out and ask anybody who attended Church on the Move in the late 90s. For two to three years before the turning of the millennium, I proclaimed boldly, there will be no economic crash because of Y2K. I ridiculed the idea of people buying food, buying uh, uh, dried food, and preparing for an economic disaster. Is it because I was so smart with a lot of insight? No, I can read. And I see that in the time that Christ returns, in these last days, the economy may have some hiccups here and there, and certainly it does, but it will not come to a complete crash. You can even see in the very end of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 18, the great merchants of the earth, and there's a lot to be said about that prophecy. We'll get into it later in this series. But they are weeping because of an economic collapse. Now, this doesn't mean that every country in the world will experience a great economy or plenty of food. It doesn't mean there won't be times of suffering. But what it does mean that the Lord is not coming to an earth that is uh, covered by an extreme depression. Jesus said that. 
So he is telling us it'll be exactly like it was in the days of Noah. The people of Noah's day had no idea that the flood was coming. It was a day just like any other day. The people of Lot's day in Sodom had no idea that judgment was coming. They had not a clue. It was a day like any other day. There were no signs in the heavens. The only thing that they had was the behavior of Lot and the behavior of Noah. Those were the only witnesses to the unbelieving world. So you can see that God has set patterns for us to follow. The Apostle Paul calls these patterns by a particular name. And it's a great name because it says so much. And I want to show you the name in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I'm reading from the King James. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Now I want to stop here. Uh, he isn't saying that God doesn't have any laws or expectations about the food we eat and things we don't. In fact, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul carried a message to the Gentiles that they were not to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols or meat that had the blood in it. They're not to consume blood. That was one of the commands that was given to the New Testament Gentiles. So you, you have to rightly divide the word. But he was telling the people of his day, don't try to fall under the Old Testament kosher dietary laws and the celebrations of the law that were observed. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day, that's one of the festivals, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow, there's the word I wanted to get to, a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, I have to confess that I have taught this passage for at least 40 years. And for 40 years, I did not fully understand the last part of that verse. But the body is of Christ. In this study, as I was contemplating, I thought, I need an answer for this. And the Holy Spirit gave it to me. The body is of Christ, meaning that all shadows are cast when there is a body. A spirit doesn't cast a shadow, but a body does. And so the body of Christ, or Christ is the one who casts shadows. Now I want you to listen to this. It's 1 John 1, 5. Scripture says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In fact, the light of God's amazing Saul of Tarsus, when he saw the Messiah and the great light, he was blinded. So that's the kind of light that God lives in. Imagine anyone coming to us from that light. What would happen as they came? Their shadows would arrive before they do. In other words, it is Christ's body that is casting shadows all through the pages of Scripture. He is the reality. He's the body. All of the other things that come before are merely shadows. They are shadows that let us know He is coming. And so that's what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2. So he's telling us 
that this device of shadows revealing something about a fulfillment, he's telling us that's an accurate way to interpret Scripture. Now, the Old Testament is loaded with the shadows of Christ. Everywhere you look, there's a shadow. The purpose of every shadow is to prepare us for relationship with the real person. Now, when I went to Bible school way back in the early 70s, I left a girlfriend at home. She eventually became my wife. I took her picture with me. And there were times that I pulled it out and looked at it and longed to be with her and didn't get to see her as much as I wanted to. So her picture was very dear to me. A shadow is very much like a picture. It's a likeness. It is a symbol of the real person. It's not the real person, but it's only a symbol. Now just imagine that I went home after my time in Bible school and got back with my girlfriend and we went out on dates and the whole time that we're on the date, I have that photograph out looking at it and I'm ignoring her but talking to the photograph. Now that's what happens when New Testament believers go back and try to keep the law of Moses. They're, quote-unquote, kissing the picture. The law is a wonderful thing, but it was only a picture of the coming Christ. All of the sacrifices, the ordinance, so many of those things had to do with telling us about what he would do when he came. But he did come. He is real. So today we can appreciate all of those shadows, but we don't embrace the shadows. The shadows are only things that we look at to help us to know Christ better. He is the one with whom we have the real relationship. Now, God breaks revelation into his church with doctrinal statements and not with shadows. Shadows have a place but they are not the way that God reveals a doctrinal idea for us to live by. Let me give you a great example of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, one of the most powerful doctrinal pronouncements in all the New Testament. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now that's a great example of a doctrinal statement. Now we live by those doctrinal statements. The church at Galatia, actually the churches of Galatia, because Galatia was not a city, it was a region, so there were a number of churches. And there were certain false teachers who came to the area from Jerusalem, and because they were from Jerusalem, they had a lot of street cred with these people, but they taught a false doctrine, and they went into the Gentile believers and taught them that even though they had received Christ, now it was important for them to keep the law. They had to be circumcised. They had to observe the festivals. Paul talked about this to the church at Colossae. That's where we got those verses just a minute ago. I want you to see what Paul did. Now he introduces a doctrinal statement again early in the first three chapters of, of Galatians, but then he adds to it a shadow, and let me show it to you. It is in Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, 
Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by bondwoman, the other one by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, that's the law, which gives birth to bondage is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. Now Jerusalem was a picture, the earthly Jerusalem, of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem is so important even to this day. It's a picture of God's capital. There is a heavenly Jerusalem as well. Then he goes on to say in verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now let's think about that for a second. The people who are born again from the power of God in heaven way outnumber all those who ever kept the law. So now we, brothers, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And by the way, Isaac was Abraham's son before there was a law, and he came supernaturally. So he's a great picture of of the New Testament church and people being born again. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. In other words... The church did not persecute the Jews. The Jews who did not believe persecuted the church. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Paul uses this symbolism to tell the churches of Galatia Don't fall under the power of the law. You've been freed from that. It served a purpose. It was awesome. But its purpose is over for us. We now have been called into a relationship that those pictures pointed to. In other words, don't kiss the picture. And by the way, he's also giving a veiled reference here to the fact that the temple would be destroyed and the children of the bondwoman would be cast out. That's what happened to the children of Israel. Their city was conquered, the temple was destroyed. Now I want to make something very clear. I do not believe that God is finished with the Jewish people. I do not believe the church has replaced the Jewish people. They have a place in God. There's something about the character of God. And by the way, if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, and we don't have time to do it in our study, but it very clearly says that God has a place for Israel, but also for the church. And so God has not replaced Israel with his church. Church has a unique program, as does Israel. Now, let's keep going. Here is another example. Uh, It's a doctrinal statement followed by a symbolic example. John 1, 12 and 13, New King James Version. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now that's a direct doctrinal statement. 
Christ gave people to become, or who believed in Him, to be, He gave them the power to become sons and daughters of God. But then here's John giving us the symbolism. John 1, verse 29. And this is John the Baptist, different John. John wrote the gospel, but he's writing about John the Baptist. The next day, John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is highly symbolic. He's comparing Christ to the sacrifice of the Lamb in the Old Testament. And so there's a doctrinal statement in John 12, uh, John 1, 12 and 13 about Jesus giving power for people to be born again, but then there's a symbolic teaching that follows it later. Although those things that were reported have been real, literal events, they're only symbols of events that have a far greater impact. So when we read about a shadow event somewhere in the Old Testament, always remember this, the first event is always lesser in importance. The second event is always greater. We cannot properly study the past events without their connections to the clear doctrinal statements of what we now have. I believe, for instance, in a pre-tribulation rapture. The reason I believe that is because I see it in clear doctrinal statements. But I also see it reflected over and again in patterns and shadowing events all through the Old Testament. The apostles themselves used these devices. I'm going to be using this over and again in this series, so I want you to know how we're going to teach. I'm going to give you a doctrinal statement, and then I'm going to show you a shadow or a symbol that sheds light on it. And many of these things have to do with what is going to come. I want to read here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. You also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to Him. Now Peter here does the same thing. He begins with a doctrinal statement. But then he goes back and gives us the story of Noah. And he tells us that the story of Noah is a picture of our salvation. Now, when was Noah saved? Actually, Noah was saved before the flood ever came. He was saved the minute that it says in Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. At that moment, he was singled out and given an opportunity to believe for salvation. He did. As a sign of his belief, he built the ark. He didn't believe the ark or build the ark to save him. 
He did it in obedience, knowing that God would save him. The flood came, and Noah passed through it and was baptized. In other words, the water was a symbol of the saving grace that had come to him earlier. So the baptism didn't save him. It was the grace that saved him. The baptism was a marker of the grace that he received, and it was used, according to Peter, as a symbol of the resurrection. That's why we baptize. We take people under the water, which means your old man dies, and the new you comes up out of the water. That is an indication of great symbolism. So the escaping of the flood was the sign that he'd found grace. And what you see is doctrine, then shadows. Doctrine, then shadows. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to look at loads of places where there's a clear doctrinal statement, and then we show you the shadow that helps you to understand. I'll be back in just a minute. Let's go further into our study. Prophecy is mysterious by design. God actually hid his plans for the redemption of the world so that the enemy could not hinder them. You know, you can see it all through Scripture. Anytime the enemy caught wind of what God would do, he got in front of it and tried to stop it, tried to hinder it. The moment that King Herod heard that a baby had been born in Bethlehem, who was destined to be the king of the Jews, he had all his men go and search for all the baby boys, two years old and under, anywhere near Bethlehem. In fact, uh, his search extended even to the north of Jerusalem, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, only about six miles apart, and had all these baby boys slaughtered. And so you can see how Satan works. If he has knowledge of the plan of God, and has a cooperating human being, he will try to hinder it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 shed light on this. This is the New King James Version. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had Satan realized that the crucifixion was going to result in his own defeat, he would never have pushed the mob to crucify Jesus. But this is something that God did. In sending Christ to the cross, God used an age-old process, something he'd done for centuries. He did it to turn Satan's own works into his defeat. Think about some of these things. First of all, it was Satan in his rage and anger and hatred of the Jewish people that sent Pharaoh to chase them at the Red Sea. And yet that very thing is what resulted in his own defeat. Had Pharaoh remained behind, there would not have been a great destruction of Egypt. Satan pushed Goliath to taunt the armies of Israel for 40 days, twice a day. Uh, again, it wound up hurting the Philistines because all of their eggs were in the one basket called Goliath. And when he was defeated, they had no confidence. Satan influenced Nebuchadnezzar to gather thousands of leaders to the worship of an idol. And they were all gathered there. And when Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego refused to bow to the king's idol and were thrown into a fiery furnace, yet miraculously delivered, all of these leaders went home as messengers of the redemptive power of God and his superiority to idol gods. Uh, Satan prompted over 120 Persian leaders to conspire against Daniel. And they had a law made that resulted in Daniel being thrown into a lion's den. Yet when Daniel was delivered, all of these people and their families were thrown into the same lion's den and destroyed. So Satan once again created a set of circumstances that blew up in his face. Uh, So it was with the cross of Christ. Satan orchestrated his own undoing, not realizing that he was walking into the very thing that God had designed to destroy his power. Now, that shows you the level of the mystery because Satan's not a dummy. He's been around for a long time. He can see a lot of things, but he has no clue as to what and how God is working. You know, one of the things that I saw in walking with God is that the Lord would speak to me and give me direction for my life. And in those early days, I pretty much expected everybody around me and all of my spiritual fathers and brothers and sisters in the Lord, I expected them to know what God said to me. And I would go and tell them, and some of them would disagree with me and actually try to hinder me from doing what I was called to do. I remember when I first got saved, the church that I had been led to, uh, they tried to talk me out of going to live with my uncle, which is exactly where God led me to go. I just assumed that they would all rejoice in that. They didn't. And so this is pretty typical of how God works. He does things in mysteries because he doesn't want Satan to get out in front of us and mess up the plan any more than, than has to be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and also verse 12, and this is New King James Version. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. In other words, you won't find the plan of God by looking with your eyes. I remember in 1984, the month of January, I was preparing to write 21 episodes of the Gospel Bill Show, and I had to film all of them in one week. And I only had three men on my team to help me get that done. And, and, uh, I, and, and it was in another city, a thousand miles away. So I was deeply troubled by the amount of work we had to do to get this done. And I knew we couldn't do it right. And I lamented over it. I, I just stopped in the middle of the writing and I said, we just got to pray. And as I prayed, I heard the Spirit say, if you will ask me, I'll give you the television studio that's across the street from your ministry. Now, I saw that studio every day. I had recorded there, actually. I knew all about it. But I never one time thought that that studio could be mine. I didn't know that the owner was going to lose his biggest client. The only reason he had the big studio was for this one client. And when that client left, he didn't need it anymore. Within four months, I was in that studio. I didn't have any TV equipment, but I was in a studio where I could rent TV equipment. Three or four months after that, I had my own TV equipment. God opened up a miraculous door, but it was all a mystery. At the beginning of the year, I had no idea we'd have our own studio. At the end of the year, we were rolling 
making shows three and four a month because of what God did. This is the way God works. Now, but God has revealed them what things? The things that He's prepared for us. He's revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So God gave us the Holy Spirit in order to, to, to follow His plans for us. The plans are a mystery, but you can find them with the help of the Holy Spirit, and He makes them known to you step by step. Very seldom does He give you the layout years and years and years in advance. Every now and then He does, uh, but it won't be in detail. Uh, I know that in October of 1976, a Holy Spirit said to me in Texas, where I was a children's minister living in a government housing project, he said, you're going to pastor a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That didn't happen for 11 more years. And, and it didn't happen because I had thought of that word all the time. I did a number of different things, but finally realized I was supposed to be a pastor. By the time God confirmed it, I was living here in Tulsa, and the doors opened up for me to launch and start a church. Then I remembered back. God told me I was going to do this, but it wasn't always on my mind, and it wasn't always obvious. It wasn't always something that I was looking to do. It was a mystery that God brought it about. Now, the Holy Spirit enables us to look at things in Scripture to make accurate comparisons. Now, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying it is the Holy Spirit who now works in us to help us to understand parables. And that's how Jesus taught. He taught in mystery. He went with one parable after another, but he explained them when he was on earth with the twelve. But after he left, it was the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to take those natural things and to make comparisons. So when we read scriptures... If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit guiding us, we come up with all kinds of crazy things. Imagine how anyone could interpret the book of Revelation without the help of the Holy Spirit. This symbolic language would be open to anybody's interpretation. But when the Holy Spirit is directing, we get an accurate assessment because He leads us to go back and study the scriptures that came before so we find the glossary, the definitions, so we can recognize what all those symbols mean. If there is any hidden biblical truth, you can bet on this, God wants His children to discover it. I find it difficult to believe that there will be all kinds of truths that God wanted us to know that somehow the Holy Spirit just couldn't get across to us or we just couldn't find it. Everything that He has declared for us can and should be known. John 16, 13 says this, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you 
into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, that's the foretelling of the future. Now, unfortunately, there are leaders in the church who ridicule people who teach Bible prophecy. And their ridicule is based upon the idea that the prophetic scriptures simply cannot be known or interpreted with any degree of confidence. I got to say this, when I hear someone make a statement like that, it reminds me of this verse in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. In other words, just because it's not your gift to teach or understand the prophetic word, how can you say that no one has a right to do that? You know, I recognize, I've got a great friend who's a missionary. spent some time with him last week. I love this man. I've supported him now for 40 years. And every time I get around him, I marvel at how much he loves missions, how at home he is with missions. He travels like 45 weeks a year. He and his wife both are eaten up with this. They love the people of the world. They're going constantly. He has millions of air miles, and uh, he knows the way airline tickets work better than the people who book the tickets, and they often defer to him, and he tells them what the rules are because he's that familiar with the airline rules. And so I've seen the grace of God on him as a missionary. That's not my calling. I don't like it. I'm a hotel missionary. When I go to a third world country in the past, I stayed in the hotel, didn't go very far, didn't want to get out, didn't want to ride in a no beat up car, ride on a train for 10 or 12 hours. didn't want to do that. That was not me. That's not how I roll. But he loves that kind of stuff. That shows you that there's a grace on him. There was a grace on me to support him. And he would tell you that much of what he's been able to do over the years has come from gifts that I've given him and the support that my church has given to him. And so we each have our parts. So when someone says, ah, that can't be understood, it's like the eye of the body of Christ saying to the hand, don't need you. I remember in 1991, early part of the year, God led me to do a series on prophecy because we were involved in the first Gulf War. And because it was in the Middle East, in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, there were loads of people who thought this had some serious prophetic implication. I took advantage of the time and the situation to do a series on prophetic events and to set people's mind at ease knowing that this was not the end of the age that there were some other things that had to happen, and the Gulf War was certainly not the end of the age. This was not the Battle of Armageddon. Our church was packed. We grew by hundreds of people. There was another pastor in the city who was very critical of me, and he made this statement, you can't build your church on Bible prophecy. And I would argue, yes, you can, when it's right, and when you are answering a real need, and when you're helping people to understand things that they have great questions about, it certainly does build your church. Now, I would say this, it's not the only message we preach in the church, nor do I believe it should be. You know, I'm amazed how Bible prophecy people will criticize megachurches and megachurches Bible prophecy people. 
And I think, what a sad thing this is, because we could learn from each other and we could benefit from each other. The problem is, many times, people who give themselves wholly to Bible prophecy are gazers. They're like the apostles on the Mount of Ascension, where they looked up at Jesus and the angels or the two men said, why stand you here gazing? We're too busy to stand and gaze or to surmise when is Jesus coming or what are we going to do. You become so involved in that that you don't get anything done. God's called us to a work. Jesus himself said, occupy till I come. So there's a balance here. Let's keep it. Now, I was criticized, but I learned to brush it off because you couldn't argue with the fruit that we had. Not every pastor is required to develop in this area. But you know what? This is time for us to partner with those who have skill. And people who have skill don't lead a church off into ditches. None of us has the whole picture. The picture is like a jigsaw puzzle. But we complete it and we learn more about what's coming by examining the parts. I'll be back in just a minute. As we wrap up this first lesson, I want to bring you to the text scripture that has given us our title. It's Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Uh, this translation is the New English Bible. I felt it, it was the most clear. And this is what God said. Remember all that happened long ago. Now, God is saying that if you want to know the future, go back Pay attention to what has already happened. Remember all that happened long ago, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Now, why would he say that? It is because God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one that we know, Father of Jesus Christ, he is the one who reveals the future. There's a great amount of prophecy in everything that he does. He said, I reveal the end from the beginning, and from ancient times I reveal what is to be. Now this is a great example of Hebrew poetry. It is a double statement. These are not two totally identical statements. They are two similar statements, but they shed light on each other. I reveal the end from the beginning, and from ancient times I reveal what is to be. Now, when you look at the last part, I reveal what is to be from ancient times, that simply could mean that God foretells the future, and He has always foretold the future. But the first part of that is what is telling. I reveal the end from the beginning. In other words, the events of the beginning reveal the things or they foreshadow the things that happen at the end. Then he says, I say, my purpose shall take effect. I will accomplish all that I please. Now this is important because so often we don't see God working or at least we think he's not working when in fact he is. And I'll get into that here in a minute and give you a clear understanding of why this is an important lesson. The more detailed and uh, a specific revelation is, 
the easier it is to understand the nature of the coming event. And you see lots of details back in early Genesis. The events of the last days then were foreshadowed by the events of these early days. We should pay attention to the details. And if this is true, then the first chapters of Genesis could foreshadow happenings uh, that are going to happen in the book of Revelation. And you can see that. And uh, I'm going to show you over 40 different parallels. Ecclesiastes 1.9 from the Septuagint asked this question, What is that which has been the very thing that will be? And what is that which has been done? The very same which shall be done. For there is nothing entirely new under the sun. So God says, in some form or another, things have already happened and they will be repeated. And remember what I said earlier in the lesson, that the first thing is the lesser, the second thing is the greater because it's the fulfillment. Now, when evil people are at work, we often think God's not working. God, why aren't you doing anything? But God is doing something by allowing and permitting evil people to move into the position where God wants them to be. And this is a truth I didn't get. I didn't see that an evil person had any place in the plans of God, not until I started reading more carefully the New Testament Scriptures, which says that God not only raised up Moses, but He also raised up the Pharaoh. He uses sinners and ungodly people to move His plans forward. And so we look around the world today and we grieve because we see evil people who are proposing very evil things. And we ask God, why aren't you working? But when you realize that those evil things were prophesied, that means then that these people are helping to fulfill God's purpose. That doesn't mean that these people are going to prevail. It doesn't mean they're going to be triumphant. It just means they're going to do a certain type of thing. God loves to set up confrontations. In other words, he creates these collisions. God permitted Goliath to act. Now, I want you to think about this. For 40 days, he came twice a day into the middle of the battlefield at the Valley of Elah, and he cursed God and the armies of Israel. He did that 80 times, two times a day, 40 days. David, on the other hand, comes into the battlefield one day, one time, but he completely turns it over in just a very short period of time. So you see, sometimes the work of the evil one is long, but the work of God when he does move is very short. And that's the way God works. Saul was on probation. For 40 days, God gave him every chance in the world to be the one to fight Goliath, but he had no faith. He was full of fear. He was in rebellion. He was not a shepherd for Israel. Saul would never be able to accuse God saying, you never let me have a chance at fighting Goliath. I would have done what David did. Saul could not say that. Everyone knew it. Saul was afraid. Only when the probationary period, and the number 40, is associated with testing and probation. That's why Jesus was tested, tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Every 
one of those days was important. So David could not show up. He was not ordained of God to show up till the 40 days were ended. Only when it was ended did God permit him to come into the confrontation. Same thing happened with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had to do certain things for the timing to be right for Moses to arrive. And by the way, Moses arrived at the end of a 40-year period. He lived in Egypt, was raised as a prince for 40 years. After he killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew, he had to flee and was gone to the land of Midian for 40 years. God appeared to him in a burning bush and brought him back to deliver the children of Israel. At the beginning of a new 40-year period, he lived for 40 years and died at 120. So you can see these probationary periods. Romans 9.17, NIV, listen to what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose. Now that's shocking to us. God raised up Pharaoh? Yes, God raised him up. That I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now we like to think that God only works through the good guys. But the New Testament teaches us otherwise. Because God knows what a wicked man will choose to do, he designs an intricate plan to guide this man to a crossroads without at any time violating his will. And that's what God did with Pharaoh. God never violated his will. God never made him do a thing that he did not want to do. But God worked a plan that brought him to the Red Sea. Years ago, 1987, 88, we, uh, we started our church, 87. We were looking for a new place to meet. We were meeting in a school. We wanted to get out of it. And I found a building that I thought was perfect for us. It was very near to where our ministry headquarters lay. Um, we could move everything over there, all of my ministry offices, my recording studio, all of that, TV studio, all of that, uh, and then have church there as well. The only thing that was lacking, the company that owned the building, they wanted to lease to us. Uh, but we were in a bigger development, and the development had been brought about by a very wealthy Tulsa businessman. So when we went before the zoning committee, downtown Tulsa, to get approval to hold church services in this building we wanted to lease, this wealthy businessman sent, businessman sent his representatives in, and they vehemently opposed us meeting there, and the zoning commission turned us down. Now, my first response was to fight, and I thought this guy's going to get a real taste of what it's like to be Goliath. But then the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, and I had this amazing sense. The man did you a favor. Now, I knew about one other building, but it was in a part of the city I didn't want to go to. But I thought, let's just go check it out. So we went to meet with the landlord. We saw the new building. We heard the numbers of what it would cost to lease there. It was so much less expensive than the first building and I did not realize this, but it was near two expressways, and I'm talking about blocks away from two expressways, a crossroads in Tulsa, 
next to the fastest growing county in Oklahoma. Now at that time, it wasn't the fastest growing county in Oklahoma, but it was about to explode. God wanted me there. This businessman didn't care anything about my church. He didn't care whether we succeeded or failed. He just didn't want us in his business park. But God wanted us to be in a part of the city where there was no church serving the people. So that's what we did. We moved to this part of town, and the rest is history. It's where our church is today. It's a mile away from where we had the lease spot. And we were able to obtain a significant amount of real estate, which I did not realize we would need. We've got 325 acres in a city. And it was amazing what God was able to do for us and what he did for us in all of that. And I would never have known it, would never have seen it. That businessman did us favor. He didn't do it because he was hearing from God. He didn't do it because he was a godly man, loved churches. He did it because he was protecting his assets. But nonetheless, God used it. God can use people who do not even fear him. Now, Joseph's brothers looked to remove him from their lives. We read about that in the book of Genesis and how that they took him out and and uh, sold him as a slave into Egypt, and we'll study that in detail in our next lesson. But near the end of the story, in Genesis chapter 50, Jacob, the father of all of these sons, dies, and the brothers become very fearful. Now they think that Joseph is going to take vengeance on them and that he is going to have them all killed. And They're really frightened. And so I want to read to you Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. And this is what they said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. In other words, God can work even through people who do not have your best interests at heart. When that happens and they seem to get by with it, don't worry. There's a setup here. God is going to use this circumstance to flip the script, and it's something that we see all through the Scriptures. We will see the evil designs of evil and crafty men, but they will be exposed. And when they're exposed, they will be utilized to move forward the great plan of God. Now, years ago, and I'm talking in the 90s, I would be in deep prayer, and the Holy Spirit would bring this psalm to me. It was not a psalm that I read. It was not 
one that I was familiar with. It was not a psalm that I wanted to memorize. You're going to see why I didn't want to memorize it. It was not something that I was particularly drawn to. The only thing that took me to this psalm was the Holy Spirit whispering to my spirit, Psalm 12. I did not realize until a couple of years ago that he was preparing me for the day in which we now live. Listen to this psalm. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. And then listen to this. Does this not describe today? The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. So here you have a psalm where there's great wickedness and great hope and triumph. And in the midst of the evil, you see God's promise to rise up and move and His promise to flip and to turn the evil that has been done. Don't think for one minute that God isn't at work just because we haven't seen evil people punished. We will. Well, that's the end of this first episode, but there are more to come, and I hope you'll listen to the whole series, write down the scriptures, study them, give thought to them, because I really do believe God wants to speak to your heart. Thank you. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below are going to MyFaithRoots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.